0: The world is a strange and mysterious place, filled with both tales to terrify and tales to astonish. From lights in the sky to strange disappearances, from monsters in the woods to the dark depths of the sea. These events can happen anywhere and at any time. Some of these stories are well known, while others may have just happened. While we may never be able to confirm or deny these encounters, they continue to merit deeper exploration. My name is Jordan Lewis, and allow me to welcome you into the darkness. Tonight's episode, The man of Savo. I often tell others that reality can be stranger than fiction. The story I'm going to tell you tonight is one such tale. A tale of nature pushing back to maintain being wild. To begin this story, allow me to take you back to the European scramble for Africa. It's the late 1800s and the nations of Europe have been dividing up the African continent as part of a new imperialist push. As I'm sure you may have already known, one of these nations was Great Britain. Enter one Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson, who had first arrived on the African continent on March 1st, 1898. He had been sent to Africa by the British in order to help construct a bridge over the River Savo in Kenya. To quote from Patterson's book, I had spent nearly a week in Mombasa and was becoming very anxious to get my marching orders, when one morning I was delighted to receive an official letter instructing me to proceed to Savo, about 132 miles from the coast, to take charge of the construction of the section of the line at that place which had just been reached by railhead. In the first few days of working on the bridge, things seemed good and work was progressing quite well. However, things wouldn't last. The first signs that something was wrong was when two of the Indian laborers disappeared. Initially, Patterson suspected foul play among the workers, despite being told they were dragged away. Patterson notes that he was more inclined to believe that the unfortunate men had been the victim of foul play at the hands of some of their comrades. They were, as it happened, very good workmen and had each saved a fair number of rupees, so I thought it quite likely that some scoundrels from their gangs had murdered them for the sake of their money. However, Patterson's theory would soon be proven wrong. Three weeks after his arrival in Savo, one of Patterson's jemadars, a powerful Sikh named Ungun Singh, would be reported as having been dragged out of his tent in the night and eaten. This would be proven when Patterson investigated the following morning and found the lion tracks around the tent. Patterson would write their description of the event as follows. The Geminar shared his tent with half a dozen other workmen and one of his bedfellows had actually witnessed this occurrence. He graphically describes how at midnight the lion suddenly put its head in the open tent door and seized ongun Singh, who happened to be the nearest... To the opening by the throat the unfortunate fellow cried out koro or let go and threw his arms up around the lion's neck the next moment he was gone and his panic-stricken comrades lay helpless forced to listen to the terrible struggle which took place outside things only became worse once patterson found the body of Singh. along the path of Singh's body it was clear the lion had stopped several times as pools of blood could be found throughout the body itself is in a terrible state, with the skin having appeared to be licked off in order to access the blood, before continuing to consume Sing. At the body's actual location, very little of it was left, with morsels of flesh and bones strewn about. The most unfortunate discovery was that of the late Geminar's head, intact with an expression of pure fear on his face. Following the burial of the body, Patterson would go out that night with his 303 rifle and a 12-bore shotgun, loaded with ball in one chamber and slug in the other. He stationed himself in a tree close to the late Jemadar's tent using a goat as bait in an attempt to end his lion problems. However, it would quickly become apparent how difficult his problem really was. Not long into waiting in the tree, Patterson would hear the lions approaching. He would describe the event as following shortly after settling down to my vigil my hopes of bagging one of the brutes were raised by the sound of their ominous roaring coming closer and closer presently this ceased and quiet rain for an hour or two as lions always stalk their prey in complete silence all at once however we heard a great uproar and frenzied cries coming from another camp about half a mile away We knew then that the lions seized a victim there, and that we should see or hear nothing further of them that night. This would prove correct as the forward camp, at the forward camp, another worker was dragged away in the night. Piers would again repeat his goat strategy at the forward camp with the same result. The lions dragged another man away from a different camp. At this point in the construction of the bridge, the various worker camps stretched along about an 8 mile distance, making it impossible for him to cover every camp. Patterson also notes that they seemed to have an uncanny ability to outthink his plans and stay a few steps ahead. He also lamented his inability to effectively hunt them during the day due to dense foliage around the area. Luckily for him, during the early stages of the conflict, the lions weren't always successful in their hunts. However, they would soon grow more bold in their attacks. One of the precautions that was taken in order to prevent further attacks was the construction of bomas around the camps. The boma are a thorn fence made out of trees and bramble, which are typically made for the express purpose of keeping predators out of an area. This, however, would prove ineffective against the Savo lions. Namely, in an incident following the discovery of tracks around the field hospital, due to the newly discovered prints, it was decided that the hospital should be moved to a new location. Unfortunately, Much like many things in this tale, another worker would be attacked and killed by the lions while bringing medical supplies to the new location, in which the only evidence of the event was the tent he clung onto being found tangled in the boma. The hospital would then be moved again, and Patterson would station himself at the previous camp in hopes of shooting the lions to once again end his problems. However, once again, Patterson would hear screaming from the new camp. The account of this worker's death would be described as follows. Hurrying to the place at daylight, I found that one of the lions had jumped over the newly erected fence and had carried off the hospital water carrier, and that several other workers had been unwilling to witness the terrible scene which took place within the circle of light. Given by the big campfire, the water carrier, it appears, had been lying on the floor with his head towards the center of the tent and his feet nearly touching the side. The lion managed to get its head in below the canvas, seized him by the foot, and pulled him out. In desperation, the unfortunate water carrier clutched hold of a heavy box in a vain attempt to prevent himself being carried off, and dragged it with him until he was forced to let it go by being stomped by the sole of the tent. He then caught hold of a tent rope and clung tightly to it until it broke. As soon as the lion managed to get him clear of the tent, he sprang at his throat, and with a few vicious shakes, the poor man's agonizing cries were silenced forever. The brute then seized him in his mouth like a huge cat with a mouse, and ran up and down the boma, looking for a weak spot to break through. This he presently found, and plunged into dragging his victim with him, leaving shreds of torn cloth and flesh as ghastly evidences of his passage through the thorns. Dr. Brock and I were easily able to follow his tracks, and soon found the remains about 400 yards away in the bush. This was the usual horrible sight. Very little was left of the unfortunate man, only the skull, the jaws, a few of the larger bones, and a portion of the palm with one or two fingers attached. Following this attack, Patterson devised a plan to use a covered freight car in order to hunt the lions at the location as the hospital was once again moved. At this time, many of the workers had taken to viewing and calling the lions as demons, to their ability to take men with ease and with no regard to anything in their way. On the night that Patterson would wait in the freight car, he had Dr. Brock, the lead medical doctor for the district, who was also along with Patterson during the previous account, came along with him to hopefully shoot the lions. The night's events would unfold as follows. I fancied I saw something coming very stealthily towards us. I feared, however, to trust my eyes, which by the time or sh- by that time, restrained by prolonged staring through the darkness, so under my breath, I asked Brock whether he saw anything, at the same time covering the dark object as well as I could with my rifle. Brock did not answer. He told me afterwards that he too thought he had seen something move, but was afraid to say it lest I should fire at it, and it turned out to be nothing at all. After this, there was an intense silence for a second or two. The sudden bound of a huge body sprang at us. The lion, I shouted, and we both fired almost simultaneously. Not a moment too soon, for another second, the brute would surely have landed inside the wagon. As it was, he must have swerved in his spring, probably blinded by the flash and frightened by the noise of the double report, which was increased a hundredfold by the reverberation of the hollow iron roof of the truck. Had we not been very much on the alert, he would have undoubtedly have gotten one of us and we realized that we had a very unlucky and very narrow escape. The next morning, we found Brock's bullet embedded in the sand and close to a footprint. We couldn't have missed the lion by more than an inch or two. Mine was nowhere to be found. This would end Patterson's first direct encounter with either of the lions. Following this event, the lions would disappear for a few months, long enough that the workers at Sava had begun to think that the devils had moved on, Five more people were killed in the neighboring areas by the lions during the fought days following the event of the freight car, but Savo itself appeared to have been freed from its man-eating trouble. However, this wouldn't last, as soon the lions returned more vicious than before. One dark night, the familiar terror-stricken cries and screams awoke the camps, and we knew that the demons had returned, and had commenced the new list of victims. On this occasion, a number of men had been sleeping outside their tents, and for the sake of coolness, thinking, of, of course, that the lions had gone for good, when suddenly, in the middle of the night, one of the brutes was discovered forcing its way through the boma. The alarm was at once given, and sticks, stones and firebrands were holding in the direction of the intruder. All was of no avail, however, for the lion burst into the midst of the terrified group, seized an unfortunate wretch amid the cries and shrieks of his companions, and dragged him off through the thick thorn fence. He was joined outside by the second lion, and so daring had the two brutes become that they did not trouble to carry their victim any further away, but devoured him within thirty yards of the tent from where he had been seized. Although several shots were fired in the direction by the gemidar of the gang to which the worker belonged, they took no notice of these and did not attempt to move until their horrible mirror was finished. Patterson's problem came back, and every night for the next week Patterson would stay up in hopes of finally ending the Lions once and for all, and every night they took someone from the opposite side of the camp from where Patterson had stationed himself. Patterson also notes that around this time, the Lions had also changed their hunting strategy. Instead of having one enter the camp while the other waited outside the Boma, it appeared they now both took one worker each. He noticed this behavior during the last week of November. Patterson had gained even more help in his hunt around this time from military, naval, and police forces in the area, and he still couldn't put an end to his problem. He became so disheartened that even he began to believe the lions to be some manner of demons. Following another attack during the last week of November, the workers refused to continue working on the bridge until their huts were made lion-proof, with many of them instead choosing to abandon working on the project entirely. The next major incident would occur on December 3rd with the late arrival of the district officer, Mr. Whitehead. Whitehead would approach Patterson the morning of the 3rd despite telling Patterson he would arrive around dinner time, December 2nd. Patterson will record their exchange in his book as follows. Where on earth have you come from, I exclaimed. Why didn't you turn up to dinner last night? The nice reception you give a fellow when you invite him to dinner was his only reply. Why, what's up, I asked. "'That infernal lion of yours nearly did for me last night,' said Whitehead. "'Nonsense. You you must have dreamed it,' I cried in astonishment. "'For answer,' he turned round and showed me his back. "'That's not much of a dream, is it?' he asked. "'At this moment, Whitehead revealed that the night he had rioted "'he had been attacked by one of the lions, "'which left a noticeable tear in his clothing, "'going from the nape of his neck downwards, "'leaving four distinct claw marks and noticeable red swelling around the same area.' Whitehead's servant, Abdullah, on the other hand, wouldn't fare so well, as he could only respond with master a lion before being dragged off into the bush moments after. Uh, Abdullah would never be found. That night, Patterson would have a group of workers stationed the trap he'd been working on since the freight car incident many months ago. The trap used another freight car with a door that would close once a lion had entered far enough into the car. The bait for this trap would be the workers, who would wait behind steel beams. That would block the lion from reaching them. The idea being that the lion, now trapped, would allow the workers to be able to easily shoot it and end it then and there. However, as is a common theme throughout this story, it did not go as Patterson planned it. One of the lions entered the trap and began to attack the bars, as Patterson had expected. This, however, filled the workers with fear and they began to fire erratically all around the car, to which Patterson notes that some of the rounds came flying out of the trap, whizzing past him at a 90-degree angle from where they had been fired. Eventually, one of the bullets would ricochet and cause the door to open, allowing a lion to escape. Patterson laments that despite being no more than 15 feet away, none of the workers landed a single shot as no blood could be found in or around the trap. However, this months-long ordeal would soon come to an end. On the night of December 9th, Patterson would finally land a killing shot on the first of the two lions and recover its body early the next morning. It would measure 9 feet 3 inches from the tip of its nose to the tip of its tail and stood about 3 feet 9 inches in height. It took 8 men to carry it back to the camp, with the only noticeable blemishes to its hide being the scars from going in and out of the boma so many times. Finally, Patterson had solved half of his lion problem. Then, a few weeks later, on December 28th, the second lion would be put down. The second lion measured nine feet six inches from the tip of the nose to the tip of the tail and stood three feet 11 and a half inches in height. Patterson would go on to publish the accounts of the events that took place as well as other events during his time in Africa in his book, The Manus of Savo, in which he would claim that he believed the lions killed a total of 135 people. He would later go on to sell the hides of the lions to the Chicago Field Museum in 1924. However, they were not well preserved and thus look smaller than they did in life. This event will have taken place 123 years ago this coming March, and remains one of the most notable human predation events in the animal kingdom. The event gained such notoriety that multiple films were made about the lions with the most notable being the 1996 film, The Ghost and the Darkness, starring Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas. In 2009, an isotopic study of the lion's hair allowed for scientists to determine the diet of the two lions in the last year of their lives. The first lion, nicknamed the ghost, ate approximately 11 humans' worth of meat, while the second lion, the darkness, ate approximately 25 humans' worth. This means that the lions combined ate at a minimum 36 people. The phrasing here is important, as much like other species of cats, it is believed that the lions didn't always eat an entire body, instead picking and choosing the parts that they liked. Additionally, some of the workers may have been killed for sport, as similar behavior can be found in other big cats, as well as your common house cat. Uh, Knowing this could lead to Patterson's initial estimate of 135 being a more accurate number. Uh, Additionally, many of the workers were vegetarian for religious reasons, and thus may have shown up on the test as typical grazing herbivores, and thus not have been considered as part of the human meat category, as humans were considered omnivorous or carnivorous on the isotopic spectrum that was conducted by the Field Museum. Which leads to the main question surrounding this event. Why did the lions become meat eaters? there are a few theories the main of which being that the lions were suffering from tooth infections which made it more difficult for them to hunt their normal prey so they chose to substitute it with humans this theory however doesn't make much sense when you consider that many big cats live full lives with tooth infections and don't turn to the same behavior another theory suggests that their main prey had become scarce and then began to hunt humans for the same reason as the previous theory however there is no evidence from around this time to suggest that being the case. Ultimately, the secret of their mating ways is lost of time and we'll probably never have a concise answer. But I think it's time I brought you back into the light and we head inside. You may never know what's watching you from the brush. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, please feel free to share it around. It helps get more people to watch the show. Uh, if you even count anything strange and would like to tell me about it, my email address is at into the darkness at gmail.com. I'll see you all next time.